So I'll begin by the reading of God's Word, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. So tonight marks a slight shift in direction. Up to this point, we've been examining what is often referred to as the first table of the law, the portion of the Ten Commandments that directly teach us how to interact in respectful and honoring ways to our God. So the first commandment talks about worshiping God with exclusivity, that we are to only worship Him, that we don't have any other gods to worship, and that our uh, adoration, affection, and allegiance should be first and primarily to Him. Uh, Secondly, we were instructed by the Ten Commandments not to make graved images of God, and this is essentially an instruction to not make God less than He is. Anything that we could create as some sort of a reference point or image of our God is less than what God truly is and would train our hearts to worship something that is below Him. So in a sense, it is a kind of first uh, commandment violation to, to, to make a graven image because it's almost as if we're creating a second God. Thirdly, we are to worship Him respectfully. Uh, we do that by not taking His name in vain or treating Him with any kind of disrespect or making less of God than He truly is. There, to, there should be a, a reverent awe and wonder and even fear in our hearts towards God because of the power that He wields in our lives and because of the fact that we were uh, rebels against His kingdom before by grace He brought us near to Him. And then fourthly, we're to worship Him consistently. For the last two weeks, uh, we've been learning about the fourth commandment in which we are told that the seventh day of the week is set apart for the worship of the Lord. Uh, We've also talked about how that has shifted from Saturday to Sunday. So now the first day of the week is essentially our Sabbath because it's the day that Jesus Christ arose from the dead and proclaimed victory over the grave. And so this this is to teach us to have a pattern of regular worship of our Lord. It's not something that we just go through great peaks And then tremendous valleys where we have these mountaintop experiences with the Lord every once in a while. But rather we should regularly and systematically seek our God and seek the blessing of fellowship with the saints who also worship that same God. So the order of the the commandments is is very significant, in fact. Uh, The first table, I think I already am missing my assignment on these, uh, these projections here. The first table of the law um, is set up to get us first thinking about our relationship with God because our relationship with God is more important than our relationship with other people. And in fact, the second table of the law, the final six commandments of the ten, will teach us how to horizontally interact with one another. But you really cannot do the second table of the law with any kind of eternal value if you are failing in the first table of the law. And so you might remember in Matthew 22 when Jesus is approached and he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus very clearly proclaims that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, to do it with all your heart and your mind and your strength. And then he says the second commandment is like it. So the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, is not exactly the same as the first commandment, but it is similar to it. And it is the second commandment because it is not as important as the first commandment. We were created to bear the image of God and to walk in a right relationship with Him. And it is out of that properly aligned relationship that we then can expect or hope to have right fellowship with one another. So keeping the first commandment will have a tremendous impact on one's ability to stay the course 
when it, when it comes to the second table of the law. The first table prepares us for the second table. Would you love others? Is that something that you desire to do? Do you want to be a good citizen, a good brother, a good participant in the family of God? Then love God first. Learn to be loved properly by Him and give your affection and your commitment and your devotion to Him first. And then let that relationship, which is foundational to who you are and to all that you value as a person, let that instruct the way that you interact with other people. So question 68. Which is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. It would seem fitting that as God begins to introduce to us the fundamental laws that govern our interactions with other human beings, that he would lead into that by teaching us the significance of our very first and undoubtedly one of our most significant relationships, that being the relationship that we have between ourselves and the mother and the father who brought us into this world. Your mother and your father are not you, but they are you in a sense. They've contributed to you the very stuff that makes you who you are. And yet the combination of that material comes together in such a way that the person you are is something different from them, unique from them, and new. But make no mistake, you couldn't be who you are if it wasn't for the blessing of the mother and the father that God has granted to you. So there is a kind of debt that is owed from the moment that you were conceived in your mother's womb. Without your mom and dad, you couldn't like or dislike anything. You couldn't love or hate. You couldn't prosper or suffer. All of life begins with this loving union between your mother and your father. And so is it unreasonable that God would command us to honor the blessing and contributions that they have made to our lives and our existence? It's not unreasonable. While the second table of the law focuses on our need to love our fellow man, it does not cease to be beneficial to our first table commandments as well. So it's interesting here that the first law in the second table actually trains up a child to have the kind of loving affection, adoration, trust, and respect that we will then eventually need to have towards God if he draws us into relationship with him. There's a reason why he calls himself our father, because much of his love and affection and patience and sacrifice is first pictured to us in the way that our mother and our father care for us when we are very, very small. We've grown up in an era when so much is said about human beings having certain unalienable rights, that every human being possesses these rights simply because they are born a human. And while I am grateful for those uh, declared truths, I fear that many of us have the default mentality, in part because of this doctrine of freedom and inalienable rights, that we've got this mindset that as soon as we come into the world, the world owes us something. We have rights to good things. We have rights to certain freedoms and luxuries, when in reality, perhaps we don't have rights to those things. The opposite, in some ways, is actually true. As soon as you are given life and breath, you are indebted. You are indebted to many. We all owe respect to the God who let you live in his creation. 
And because God chose to bring you into this world by way of your mother and your father, you owe them a debt of respect and honor as well. They will usher you into the world at significant expense to themselves. They will answer to God for the job job that they do in teaching you, in training you in the way. They will answer to the Lord for that. They will answer to the Lord in setting an example for you and in providing well for you and protecting you from evil. Those are great responsibilities, weighty calls that God has placed on their lives to bring you into this world. Whether you asked to be born or not, and I've heard this said before, when somebody was upset at their parents and did not want to have to honor them, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't ask to be a part of this family. But whether we're asked to be a part of a family or not makes no difference. The the universe doesn't revolve around our permission or our desires or our intentions or plans. God has brought you into the world. He has a plan and the mother and the father that he gave you is a part of that plan. You were born to the two people that God ordained you to be born to. And so God says it is your responsibility to honor those two people. And so as we begin to build upon the foundation that the father laid in delivering the first table of the law to Israel via Moses the prophet, we see that God has a plan for order. He has a plan for order, first of all, in the home. And that plan sets a pattern that will also resonate in countless other relationship dynamics that create the cultures and the societies that we are blessed to be a part of. And so question 69 then dives deeper into this concept of honoring mother and father and asks, what is required in the fifth commandment? What is God demanding of us? But before we answer that question, I'd like to point out to you that of the ten laws that form the ten commandments, the Decalogue, All of them are introduced to us in the form of a negative command. Have you ever noticed that? All are negative with the exception of two. The fourth command that Paul has taught for the last two weeks, keep the Sabbath holy, that's a positive command, do this. And then tonight's command, the first of the, the second table, which is to honor positively your father and your mother. So eight out of the ten start with, you shall not. And this is by design. It is for simplicity. God has created humankind with great freedoms. Remember in the creation account that having put Adam and Eve in the garden, God told them that they could eat of any tree that they so desired, with one exception, right? Only one tree was off limits to them, the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So God didn't talk about each tree that he had made and say, you can eat almonds and you can eat grapes and you can eat this and you can eat that. Instead, he said, this is all yours. Just don't do this. There wasn't a need to to recount every single tree that was available to them or every plant that bore good fruit. God only needed to restrict them from what was a hindrance to them, from what was evil. And so when we think about the Ten Commandments, I think it's very useful to recognize that God has given us so much So much latitude and freedom. But for our benefit and protection, he levies these commandments into our lives to protect us from evils, to keep us from things that would be harmful to us and would destroy what is good and what God intends to bless us. A pastor that I really respect out of Nevada, a man named Brian Borgman, um, had a great message on the fifth commandment that I listened to in prep for this week. And he pointed out that each of the second table commands protects an important aspect of society as God desires us to enjoy it. The fifth commandment protects 
the family. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, protects human life. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, protects marriage, one of the most important institutions that makes cause for family, right? The eighth commandment, do not steal, protects your property and the things that you hold dear to you, the things that you need to survive. The ninth commandment protects the truth. Do not bear false testimony. Where would our society be without truth? We might soon see because our culture is rejecting in such large, uh, large quantities the commands of God that truth is becoming a relative concept. But the commandments are here to protect the truth and to keep it viable for us. And the tenth commandment is there to protect our hearts. Do not covet what others have. Learn to be content in your God. So I love this beautiful picture of a father who is caring for us and setting boundaries, not to limit us, not because he is uh, some self-centered God who doesn't want us to enjoy anything but him, but because he knows that there are things that are destructive to us. And every good and perfect gift will be the ones that he brings into our lives because he knows what is best for us. So when God says no, he's speaking more narrowly. He's restricting us from the things that are wicked. But when he says yes, it's a little more complicated. As a positive imperative, we are told what we must do. We must honor our father and our mother. It is therefore helpful, I think, to discuss and illustrate what is meant by that command and to help those who follow it understand the extent of expectation that's put on us who are being instructed to follow the fifth commandment. How do we honor our father and mother? When do we honor them? To what degree are we expected to honor our mother and our father? So as a positive command, the fifth commandment begs for further instruction, and we will get into some of that this evening. The answer to question 69 that we mentioned a little bit ago, the fifth commandment requires preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. Am I not there yet? keep forgetting my slides. Sorry, everybody. The catechism answers that we see here seem to speak much more broadly than the commandment itself does. Remember, the commandment says, honor your father and your mother. But we see here an expansion on the scope of what the fifth commandment actually covers. It interprets the fifth commandment as more of a, uh, of a, um, of a family command, understanding it to apply to more than just a family command, understanding it to apply to any place that structures of authority have been established in the affairs of men. So why does the catechism speak of the command in such broad terms when the language of the command seems to be much more limited on the surface? And that's, it's because there's a progressive structure to how God delivers his law to man. Think again about the words of Matthew in regards to the greatest commandment. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. On these two commandments depend. Some translations will say on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. In other words, the ten are foundational to many other laws that God will give to us. But those secondary laws are going to find in their root something in the Decalogue 
to anchor them to what God has told us is essential to the well-being of our societies through obedience to God's law. The fifth commandment is one of two positive commands in the Decalogue, but we have already seen in previous questions that even negative commands imply positive commands, don't they? So when God says, for example, in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, in that command we also essentially get the command to worship him, that he is to be the only God before us, that we are to worship him well and exclusively, that you will worship him with a kind of devoted and faithful love that he is hereby forbidding us to give to any other being. So even a negative command comes with positive implications. So too do positive commands, like the fifth command we're studying tonight, come with some negative implications. And so question 70 asks, what is forbidden in the fifth commandment? If we're to honor our mother and father, then without even needing to say it, we naturally understand that to mean that we're not to dishonor our mother and our father, right? That we're not to speak roughly to them or ignore their commands. We're not to trust other people who don't love us and have not invested in us over our mother and our father. It also implies here that honor is due to both of our parents. The and is extremely important in this commandment. Honor your mother and your father. You're not allowed to just like one of your parents, honor them, but treat the other one as if they don't belong in authority over you. God has placed them in that position, and by way of His command and His design, we are to treat them with respect. We're to have respect for the marriage commandment that brought them together and gave them a framework for being our mother and father. So there is, there is much commanded in, in the fifth commandment, positively but also negatively. We're not allowed to slander our parents. We're not allowed to speak ill of them or to lie to them. So the fifth commandment forbids neglecting or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongs to everyone in their several places and relations. When we rebel against God-ordained institutions, it's sin. When God says this is how the world will run and we say, no, 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 I don't like the order of that. I have a better way of doing it. I've got a better way of looking at my life. Then that is sin. You're probably wondering, is there ever a time when it is okay not to honor our mother and our father? And we're going to get to that. So don't miss what we're talking about right now. We are going to eventually deal with that because not every mother or father is honorable in the way that they care for their children. But, but for right now, let's think again in terms of the fact that these Decalogue commands are not exhaustive. They're foundational. They are the skeleton upon which many other proper commands are hung. And God roots those other commands and anchors them to these fundamental truths we find in the Decalogue. So, for example, have we not, as Christians, a very basic command to honor all people? We're told here specifically to honor our mother and father, but Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, tells us that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a sense here in which there are many institutions throughout all of society where we've got to be careful to... To, to give honor and respect to one another. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Romans 12.1, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
So there's a very real sense broadly in that we are to respect everyone, right? There should be a general respect for humanity that we are to have. But here in the Decalogue, we're told very specifically to honor our mother and father. This fifth commandment kicks off the second table of the Decalogue with a precept that's fundamental to societal order and sets the table for us in terms of interacting with dignity and respect for one another. Now, some people might ask themselves, well, couldn't that dignity and respect happen without any kind of structures of authority? Without bosses, without kings or rulers, couldn't we all just get along as equals without any need for one to be over another? Aren't we all created with inalienable rights? And so shouldn't we just all be completely equitable in the way that we do life? Two two replies to that question. First of all, we are not born with enough knowledge to treat each other as equals. A child has no interest in an ideal society where everyone operates on the same level. A little infant doesn't know better. And so their world revolves around themselves. There must be an authority structure for a family to function. That baby, that child, needs somebody who knows more than them to be an authority, to guard them against error, to keep them from hurting themselves. A person who's farther along in the journey who should have authority over them to keep them from hurting themselves. So this command is rooted in the family for a reason, because human beings need authority. Secondly, you might say that in theory, adults could just treat each other as equals and there wouldn't need to be levels of authority or, or uh, leadership above others. But in practice, people never act that way. Besides being born lacking knowledge of equality and of relational responsibilities, man is also born with something that hinders them in these regards. He's born with a sin nature. We are all inclined to offend one another. And there must be a mechanism in place to battle against the societal effects of that sin. Now, ultimately, we know as Christians that the great victory over all of that sin is not in the law. The great victory over all of that sin is the grace of Jesus Christ. But we we recognize that even for those who don't believe in Jesus Christ, that the law of God has had a great restraining power upon the world, that the world is nowhere as evil as it could be because of the power of God's law having some kind of impact on the society around it. So we need leadership. There must be levels of authority. There must be accountability in society or else things go to anarchy very quickly. Inherent in this command is that mankind must display respect and honor for the basic structures by which God brings order and government to society and culture. So the Baptist Catechism that we're studying tonight, it's a great framework for understanding our faith as it applies to the Christian life, but it is not the only helpful catechism. And this week, as I've been preparing to teach this lesson, the Westminster Larger Catechism, which was written a bit before the Baptist Catechism, was a great help to those Baptists when they developed the Baptist Catechism. We're going to look at some of what it has to reveal to us tonight as well because I think it's very beneficial to us. The Westminster Larger Catechism explains that this command to honor those in authority over us broadly applies to three categories of people. And this is going to be on your note sheet. So if you don't feel like you have to write all that down, you can just grab a note sheet on the way out if you don't have one already. First of all, the Westminster Catechism points to the fact that we are to honor those who are superior in age to us. Those who are in temporal terms, our elders. And this is based on Scripture. 1 Peter 5 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, 
all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there should be in the hearts of young people who want to honor God, a a respect for those who are farther along the journey than they are. That is something that our culture largely disregards. You don't see in, in Western culture this desire to honor those who came before us or this, this teaching to the kids when they're young that, that those who are older should, should be treated with a kind of respect and reverence because of the commands of God. Rather, our culture behaves as though when someone is too old to really contribute work-wise or when they're beyond the, the, the modern, uh, popular ideas of what is good and culturally hip, then you just put them to the side, and you let the world move on without them. And that's not the way that God has told us to treat our elders. We are to treat those who are older with respect. We are to listen to them and spend time with them. We are to desire to develop relationships with them so that we might learn from them, so we might be benefited and blessed by their experience. So 1 Peter 5.5 helps us to understand the importance of honoring those who are superior in age. So does 1 Timothy 5.1-2 which says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Notice the language there in 1 Timothy, that the Apostle Paul is is basically saying that the family sets the tone for how we are to deal with relationships even outside of the family that we learn so much of how to interact with each other in the world by way of our mother and our father, our sisters and brothers, because if you don't have family context, then that instruction means very little to you. So the way that we learn to respect each other, it's, it's foundationally grabbed within the context of a family. A great age is a gift from God. We often complain about getting older, and about the creaks and the groans that come when our bodies start to fall apart. But every year, I got an amen on that one, good. But every year is evidence of God's enduring mercy upon you. Every year that God gives you life and breath is a gift from the Lord. And we don't know what each new year comes with it, what what, what it brings to us. But just the fact that we are alive is, is a gift from our God. It's one that we did nothing to deserve. And yet it's, it's a gift that God gives to us so that we might be good stewards of our time, that we might worship Him well and in obedience in response to the transformation He's brought about in our hearts. There is an extent of God's blessing upon a person who's persisted for many years. And so we should honor that. Look at this person who's 90 years old. God has given them so many years upon this planet. Praise Him for His life-giving power. With many years often comes an accumulation of wisdom. That doesn't always happen, but it often does happen. And even if it doesn't come with wisdom, it comes with the kind of experience by which we might make wise deductions. You listen to somebody and the trials and the tribulations they've gone through in their lives, and you can pick up on things. The things that you're learning in the Word, you can see how it applies to what they have dealt with. Whether they've walked a hard road because they didn't listen to God, or they've walked a road of of blessing and triumph because they have trusted in God even through their their difficulties and their their, uh, trials. Even if advanced age does not bring advanced wisdom, many years do not come without much labor and without much endurance. Life is hard. It is difficult. So if somebody has endured through the the rigorous strains of life for 70 years, 80 years, 
Respect that person for the work that they have put in. And there's a, there's a great chance that older person has in some small ways contributed to the world that you live in today. Those who are older have worked hard and have made contributions to society for a greater stretch of time than you have. They've done much more for this world than a young person has. So we should, we should offer them respect. We should, we should give them the benefit of, of honor. Based on God's command, by the way, we don't see any kind of, a, of an idea of a tipping point at which time a person begins to become less important because they've, in a sense, you might be familiar with the phrase, they've jumped the shark of life. They've got past their best years. And so now, yeah, they're still alive, but they're just sort of hanging on. The Bible doesn't talk about people like that. And in fact, there, there are many instances where God will surprisingly use somebody who seems to be far along in age, far past perhaps childbearing age, and then they end up becoming the mother of many nations. And so God is, 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 does not look at older people as washed up as useless. In fact, he will often use the, uh, these people of advanced age for, for very mighty and useful things. So we're to honor those who are superior in age. The second thing we learn in our study of the Westminster Greater Catechism is that we are to honor those who are superior to us in gifting. Now in Genesis 4, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible there, in Genesis 4, we begin to see the far-reaching implication of Adam and Eve's sin in chapter 3. Their grown children have inherited original sin from them. And we read of Cain and Abel, their sons, bringing gifts of worship to the Lord. The, the Ten Commandments were not the beginning of worship to the Lord. Ever since the Lord brought man onto this earth, there's been an implication for worship there. Cain and Abel bring gifts to the Lord, and the gift that Abel brings is more acceptable to God than Cain's gift is. Now, rather than applauding his brother's greater gift, or even determining to prepare a better gift in the future, Cain grows bitter towards his brother to the extent that in his anger and his rage, he murders his brother and hides his body in a field. We all remember that story, probably. We all remember God's confrontation of Cain we maybe remember that part of the curse that Cain had to endure was an exile away from his family. God forces Cain to wander the earth, but does provide some protection by way of a mark, indicating that others were not to kill him. Do you remember the verses that God interjects at that point? Very interestingly, bless you, in Genesis 4, verses 20 through 22. I think I have this up on the screen here. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Now this is an interesting and odd little interjection in the story of Cain. It goes back to Cain right after that. But why does God in, in, uh, include this little section here? And this constitutes a brief list of some who had greater gifts to offer. Cain just murdered Abel because the gift he brought to God was more acceptable. And then God gives us this short list of people who were fathers of industries, who were particularly gifted in certain areas. They were innovators. They were particularly talented in some niche part of life. Jabal in livestock and shepherding. Jubal in music and the development of instruments. Tubal Cain was a craftsman of bronze and iron tools. And God will give us people like this from time to time who are particularly proficient at something in life. 
And we should give them reverence. We should give them honor for that contribution that they are able to make. Rather than grow bitter towards them or wish that we had that gifting, rather than being angry at what God gave us and covetous of another person's gift, we should respect that God is providing for us through means of what he has provided for that one person. See, the idea of equality, friends, is a tricky thing. We are all, no doubt, made in the image of God. That gives us all intrinsic worth that cannot be overlooked. In fact, next week when we look at the sixth commandment, we're going to see that the basis for God's instruction not to murder is rooted in this ideal reality that every human being bears the image of God. No matter how smart they may seem or how foolish they may seem, if they are a human, they bear the image of God, so we can't just kill them. It would be wrongful to take that life that God made as a representative of him. And while we all have great value because we bear that image of God, we're not all the same, are we? We are unique, diverse. We each possess a range of abilities and weaknesses that make it difficult to claim that we are all absolutely equals. I am grateful every Sunday morning for David and Moki in the sound booth. Because those two guys know tech way better than I do. And when the fellowship hall goes blank, you don't want to run to Pastor Nick and ask him how to fix it. You want David or Moki. They are better at it than I am. Their experience and their proficient thinking solves those problems better than mine could. Not all of us have the same gifting in every area. And so they would be considered more valuable than I am in a situation like that. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 through 18. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to, to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. We're going to be uh, looking at these verses here in just a, a few days on Sunday morning as we finish up the book of 1 Corinthians. And here are some individuals that were particularly blessed with strong faith. And early on in the life of the church, they have been, become a blessing to the other believers there. So Paul is saying, those people of very strong faith, I've given them to you as a gift. Rejoice in them. Don't be covetous of them. Don't take them for granted. Don't grumble against them, but be thankful for the leadership that I have given to them so that they can be a blessing to you as the congregation that they are a part of. We see again 1 Timothy 4.12. The apostle Timothy, or he's not quite an apostle, sort of like an apostle. That's up for debate. But Paul is speaking of his young protege, Timothy. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. See, here was a man who did not have the gift of great experience. He didn't have as many years on the earth as others. And yet this is a man who had been given extraordinary gifts from the Lord of understanding and faith. He knew the gospel. He was able to preach the gospel and communicate the truths of God. He understood what makes for a healthy church. And so Paul sends him into this church in Ephesus and he says, when you're leading there, don't let somebody look down on you for your youth. In other words, age is not the only thing that earns respect. God had given this man gifts. He had given him blessings and talent. 
And so Paul says, you make sure that those people understand that's not you, that's the Lord in you. And don't let them treat you with disrespect. Don't let them think wrongly of you. You are being used of God. So we are, as God's people, to be grateful for those who have been given particular giftings in certain areas. We are to be uh, appreciative and show honor to those who are uh, superior to us in certain gifted areas. Uh, Thirdly, the Westminster Larger Catechism instructs us that we are to honor those who are in a superior station to ourselves. That means God has put them in a position, some sort of a station in life, where they have leverage upon us. They have authority or influence. Most obviously, this applies to our parents, right? God has given every one of us parents to whom we should show honor and respect because they have the authority to bring us up the way that they see fit, according to, if they are Christians, the instruction of the Lord. But it also applies to other positions of authority, other stations such as someone who is a boss at a job or a general in the army or a sergeant in the police police department. It applies to teachers who are there to give you wisdom and to impart to you understanding. It applies to coaches who are giving you instruction and, and challenging you to be stronger and to become masters of your physical strength. It applies to overseers, to elders in the church who are there to be a a blessing. Ephesians 4 speaks of them as a gift to the church. Those who are there to give order and guidance and instruction and to inspire the discipleship and the growth of the people at that place. It even applies to slaves who are in the care of a master. We know in first century, many of the Romans were not citizens of Rome, but rather they had found themselves in a situation of slavery. It was much different than the slavery in the early Americas, but even that relationship of authority and submission is spoken about extensively in the New Testament so that Christians who found themselves in that situation would know to respect their masters as slaves. We see some examples of this in Scripture, of course, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In just a moment, we're going to talk about how with authority always, always comes responsibility as well. And that's not just Spider-Man's line, right? That's from Scripture. And so we've got in Hebrews 13 here a command to obey our leaders because there is great weight upon them for the calling that God has put into their lives. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now when we think about the church and how it is structured, you know, we often are very open about the fact that we're a complementarian church. We believe that the Word of God has instructed men to be in positions of leadership. But not all men, Right? Not all men can step into the pulpit and and preach. Not all men can be leaders in the church. It's those whom God has called to that work. Those who have been specially appointed to those stations through the work of the Holy Spirit and have been given that great responsibility. Uh, So not everyone is put in that station, but those who are put in that station should be given honor and dignity. Romans 13.1 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is speaking to the secular governments that are over us. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Have we had to contend with the exceptions to the rule in this last category in the last couple of years? Absolutely we have. Um, 
But there is a sense in which God has ordained even the governments over us. And so we should have a default position of respect towards the police who enforce the laws of the land. We should have a default position of honor towards those governors, those presidents, those judges that are adjudicating the law in our land. We should have a sense of honor for them. We should be praying for them and we should give them some degree of respect. Uh, why does Exodus 20 specifically cite fathers and mothers? Why not simply say superiors, right? Because the catechism here seems to expand this out. Why doesn't Exodus 20 expand it out? Exodus 20 doesn't expand it out because fathers and mothers are our first superiors. And nearly every human gains their earliest idea of authority and structure via their participation in the family. In, in fact, I, I remember hearing something very very young, that if you want to know if a young man is going to treat your daughter well, if a, a guy's trying to marry your daughter, if you want to know how he's going to treat your daughter, watch how he treats his own mother. Pay attention to the way that he treats her. If he treats her with respect and reverence, if he is, if he is truthful to her and, and follows her instructions, then there's a good chance that that young man will also treat his wife with respect one day. But if he is lying to his mother, if he puts her to the side and acts as though she has no bearing on, her, on his life, then there's a good chance that that man's not going to grow to respect his own wife and treat her with the kind of dignity that God is also going to expect of him as a husband. Now, when we think about this idea of respecting our mothers and fathers, does this... Is this expected to us perpetually? In other words, does it go on forever? Are you to always to be under the leadership of your father and mother? And, I, and the scripture describes to us in not explicit ways, but implicit ways, that this is supposed to carry on not in obedience to our fathers and mothers forever, but in honor to them. There is never a time when, when you're to grow out of this honor command to your parents. Look at Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a male shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus is there pointing to Genesis and showing uh, uh, one of the rhythms of family. That when a, a young man is old enough to be responsible over his own care, and then takes into his own responsibility the care of a wife and begins a family of his own, there is a degree of separation there. There is a sense in which the authority has shifted. Now mom and dad are no longer over their son in so much as he is independent from them. Now if that child remains in the house, then a man is in charge of and responsible for what happens in his own home. So that father's dominion would still be in effect in that home if son and son's new wife was living with the family. But when that young man ventures out on his own, at that point, dad can't call up son and say, uh, it's Tuesday, you got to come home and mow the lawn, right? Because that's your chores. No, at that point, this man is embarked upon the world and now he is taking on the responsibilities of a head of household himself. There is still honor due to that father. Uh, that young man should cherish his father's wisdom and he should look to dad for help and guidance. But ultimately, he's responsible for his own decisions at that point and should take responsibility for them. When 
a mother and a father try to put too much dominion on their grown adult children, it can wreak havoc in a household. When a, a young man and a young woman get married and they move out and they've got their own house going on, you've got to be careful that grandma and grandpa don't come in and make all the decisions about how those grandkids are going to be raised. Those decisions need to be up to their son and their daughter. Now, you always have the word as your standard, so it's right and true. If you see your kids raising your, parent, your, your children, your grandchildren in a way that's inappropriate to the scripture, by all means, discreetly go to them one-to-one, face-to-face, and point them to the word, as any good Christian should do. Uh, but it is no longer the responsibility of grandma and grandpa. They don't have dominion over those grandchildren the way that mom and dad do. But we do know that there should be an ongoing care and concern for parents even long after children have left the home. We see this in Mark chapter 10. I'm sorry, I think it's Mark chapter 7. There we go. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Wow, the stakes are kind of high there, aren't they? But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, which was a word that meant given to God, then you're no longer then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So let me explain what's going on here. Jesus is confronting the legalistic attitude of the Pharisees. Now that word legalism gets thrown around a lot and is often misapplied. But true legalism is adding to the word of God or making the claim that the, uh, the law can do more than it really can do. And so we are not saved by the law. When you claim that we are saved by the law, you're being legalistic about it. We have a law that guides our conduct and blesses us with a picture of God's will for us. When you add to the law of God, you demand things of people that the word does not demand of them, you're being legalistic. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing here. They were subtracting from the word of God in order to add a different law to the word of God. The word of God said, honor your mother and your father. And so these grown people were supposed to look after mom and dad if they began to become too old to care for themselves. If they began to become too weak to work, then mother and father should be cared for by their adult children who could uh, contribute to their well-being and look after them and protect them. But some had made up a law that said, look, if I vowed to give everything to the temple, to the work of the Lord, that I would have otherwise done in taking care of you, then now I'm free of my responsibility to you, uh, and now I'm, I can give that money in, in, in the ways that I want in, in benevolent giving. That was a, a subjection of the word of God. That was a sidestepping of God's command. And so there is this ongoing sense in which we are to continue to honor mother and father, to care for their needs and look out for them uh, when it becomes pertinent that we need to do that. And we've seen some wonderful examples of that in our own congregation of folks whose moms and dads began to become too old to be uh, able to care for themselves and their, their sons, their daughters stepped in and did a tremendous work in looking after them and loving them. And when there is no son or daughter, that's really the responsibility of the church then, to care for those older saints that, that don't have anybody to step in and look out for their needs. And we honor mothers and fathers even by doing that as a church. Now another question that needs to be asked is, does this command to honor mother and father, does it apply to parents who are negligent or parents who are abusive or dishonest or addicted to drugs or alcohol? 
The requirement that is put upon us here is all due reverence. We're to give all due reverence to our mothers and our fathers. And the reverence due to a person is based on their station. It's not necessarily based on their performance in that station. So covenantally, we are linked to God and obligated to him. When we honor a parent that doesn't necessarily deserve honor, one that hasn't done a good job in being a good mom or a good dad, then we're honoring God by honoring that parent who is in many ways unworthy, who is in many ways falling short of their responsibilities. When we show them honor anyway, when we listen to them and we don't scorn them, we don't slander them, we are showing respect to God by being respectful to his law. But there is a point at which a child must look out for their well-being. And if a mom or a dad is ignoring the law of God and is treating them with with such vile violence or with, with sexual abuse, then it is acceptable for them to seek help outside of, of the family and, to, and hopefully to get help from their elders in that, respo- in that respect. Inherent in the command, though not explic- explicitly stated, is the fact that God ordains these structures of order. And he has much to say also to the person who's in the position of authority. So this command is not just to children, honor your mother and father, but in a sense, it's also to parents, an encouragement for them to be honorable, to be the kinds of mother, the kinds of fathers that a child would love to honor, that would be happy to obey and respect. The station does not allow the one in authority the freedom to play God in that role, whether it's a mother or father or a boss or a government official or a doctor or a teacher. That station of authority and influence is not a carte blanche license to do whatever you want to do. When they no longer represent God in their role or they misrepresent him, then there are times when honor must be withdrawn from that person. Look at Ephesians 6.4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And this is one that's weighed heavy on my heart because I'm not always a patient dad. I'm not always the kind of dad that instructs my children with gentleness and with long-suffering. But this is the Word of God, and so I've got a responsibility, not just an authority, over my children. And part of that responsibility is to care for them with a gentle hand as my God has cared for me with a gentle hand. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, says Paul. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So here the Apostle Paul is he's making reference to himself in regards to the Corinthian church. He's like a spiritual father to them. And, and he says, just like in a family context, parents are there to be a blessing to their kids, not a burden to them. And so I'm not going to come to you to be a burden. I want to come to be a blessing to you. He's saying this of of his intent to visit them and to care for them well. Mothers and fathers should not be, therefore, overbearing on their children. They should make every effort to be a blessing and not a hindrance to their growth and their well-being. Now that is all structured under the, the, the guidance of Scripture, of course. First Thessalonians speaks to this as well. I don't think I have this in a slide for you. But chapter 2, verses 7 through 8 says, But we were gentle among you. This is Paul talking about himself and the other apostles. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And he goes down in verse 11 to say, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So what Paul is doing here in his description of what makes a good apostle, he's also by proxy teaching us what makes a good and honorable mother and father. A mother is one that nurtures their children, that cares for them, and is affectionately desirous of their children. Pray that God will make your heart, if you're a mother, care for your children in those ways. If you are a father, then it is your charge then to be an exhorter and encourager of your children, that you are to help them to see the challenge of walking in a manner that is worthy of God, but to do it with patience and reverence. God is calling us into his kingdom and his glory, and he often uses parents to show the children the, the beautiful reality of that calling. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16 is another example of this. It says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, how? As my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So parents, mothers and fathers, it's not enough for you to just say what is true and send your kids off on the task to be obedient to the Lord while you yourself ignore that very same command. We are to be exemplary to our children in faith. We are to be the ones that obey the law first. And we do that knowing that we couldn't obey that law at all if it wasn't for the abiding grace of Jesus Christ. Do your kids see in you an utter dependence on Jesus? Do they see in you a confession that consistently points to the cross? And says, without the work of Jesus Christ, without his shed blood, I would be a reviler. I would be a drunkard. I would be an adulterer. But because of the Lord and his work in my life, I can stand before you as one who wants to obey the word of God. And I can confess to you openly that I don't do it perfectly. But praise God, because I have Christ, there is forgiveness for me when I fail, and I can learn from that. Are we modeling that for our children? Or are we simply saying, this is what you need to be? This is what you should do. Mom and dad are going to do something different. God doesn't expect this of us, but this is what you're supposed to do. No, we are to set an example that our children might grow up to see a picture of Christ in our obedience to him. And in some way, this also applies to other relationships like a king and their vassal or subject, a master and his slave, an employer and his employee, a rabbi and his disciple, a teacher and his student, the police and their citizens, a coach and their athletes. Those in positions of authority must recognize that more than just dominion has been given to them, responsibility to be kind and caring and to lead in such a way that Christ would lead has been put upon them as well. That superior is to be a blessing to those they lead. They are to pray for them and lift them up before the throne of God. They are to instruct them in the truth of God, knowing that they would not know the way if God had not revealed it through his scripture. They are to commend them to what is good. They are to admonish them when they do what is wicked and when they stray from the path of God. They are to provide for them so that their needs are met, so that they have the resources they need to be obedient to the scripture. And they are to set the example in their own personal faith and obedience. 
By fulfilling these commands, the one in authority defends God's implementation of these offices in this structure. And by the way, when I, when I mention that list, you might realize you know, your boss is maybe not a believer at all. So you can't expect them to do that well. You know, we've got a governor right now who's not a believer, doesn't call upon the name of the Lord. So while God is, is demanding that he rule with truth and as an example, he's not doing that. Your best example is your mother and your father if you're in a household of faith. And if you're not in a household of faith, perhaps your best example are your brothers and your sisters in the church who walked the road before you walked it and are there to encourage you and exhort you. The church can be like a family to you if the family that you have is not a place of faith. By fulfilling these commands, the one in authority defends God's implementation of these offices and of this structure that he has created for us. Titus 2 verse 15 says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Titus, as an elder, is, is told, be an honorable leader. Fulfill the requirements of eldership that I described to you in this first chapter. And then as you walk in the truth, do not allow people to disregard you. If you're walking in the truth, then lead with confidence. Lead by example. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So to fall short in a situation of leadership that God has placed you in can carry grave consequences. The Apostle Paul didn't want to become disqualified. He wanted to continue to lead with grace and love, with the kind of affection and patience that the Savior had shown to him. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And really, something like this comes with every station that God might put you in. I think those who are given children are given an incredible stewardship from the Lord. And I think there's a great responsibility there that they will come before the Lord and God will say, what did you do with this family that I, I put into your care? Did you point them to me? Did you love them with the love that I gave to them, or that I gave to you? Did you listen to my scripture or did you just wing it and do it how you wanted to do it? Let not many of you become teachers. I think you could say, not, let not many of you become politicians. Let not many of you become uh, sergeants. Let not many of you become mothers and fathers unless you're ready for the responsibility that comes with that role. Falling short of God's commands through negligence and laziness uh, will be a detriment to our relationship with the Lord. When we promote evil as leaders, then we are putting aside the command of God and we're ignoring our responsibilities. When we make use of one's own authority without regard for the glory of God, when we lead with pride or arrogance, with selfishness or greed, when we correct the insubordinate without patience or compassion, then we are also, I believe, in violation of the fifth commandment because we're not living in such a way that we are honorable as leaders. The last clause of the commandment uh, is... Uh, the concern of catechism question 71, the last one we'll think about tonight. We're almost finished. It says, what is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? And the answer for that is that the reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and for their own good to all such as keep the commandment. So two benefits of keeping this commandment, one being long life 
and the other being prosperity. Now, I love how the Catechism puts this. I think it's a beautiful sentence that follows. As far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good. That makes it clear to us that the fifth commandment is not some sort of loophole where God made a mistake and made a promise that he has to keep now. As long as you honor your mother and your father, there's no way you're going to die early and there's no way you're going to be a poor person. We can't expect God to make us rich and prosperous and let us live to 100 just because we honored our mother and our father. That's not the kind of command that's being given here. It's not a covenantal promise per se. It is more an explanation of wisdom. God God has not established ways for us to work around his sovereignty. And so he will not enact a law that will hinder him from accomplishing his goodwill. And it may be his goodwill for you to not have a long life. It may be his goodwill for you to die in the name of Christ at a young age. It has been for many of the saints over the years. It may be in his goodwill for you to have very little in this life, to suffer for sickness, to be lonely in some regards, so that you will learn to trust in Christ and to glory and find your contentment in him and him alone. God has the right to do those things in the life of every believer. But we have great wisdom here that if we are honoring our mother and father, and if we keep this commandment outside of the house as well, when we honor our boss, when we are respectful to our elders, when we care for politicians and pray for their needs, then life is better for us. It it generally, in in a broader sense, leads to a society that has more order to it, that has more peace. And and so right now, sadly, we're in a situation where the command to honor your mother and father is has been downgraded so drastically that now mothers and fathers barely have the right to speak into their children's child or their health care at all. Uh, Your children are allowed now to go and get an elective abortion without even telling mother and father that this major surgery has happened in their lives. They're allowed to go and get vaccines without talking to mom and dad about it in some areas of the nation. And so there are many challenges to the fifth commandment in our society. But we as the people of God must recognize that the higher calling is not the laws of the land, but is the law of our God, that we are to honor our mothers and fathers regardless of whether our society does or not. And God gives us these commands because he desires order for us. He doesn't want us to have to live in a place of chaos where there is no authority structure and everyone runs around doing what is right in their own eyes as they did in the days of Noah. 1 Corinthians 14.33 Specifically in speaking about, I don't know what just happened. Huh? Go back one. There we go. Okay. 1 Corinthians 14.33. This is specifically speaking to order in the house of God during the Lord's Day and services of worship. He's speaking of uh, the unlawful use of speaking in tongues and other expressive gifts. But I think it applies to this situation as well because it's speaking to the character of God. It says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. When every citizen runs around acting as though they are the highest authority in the land and they have no regard for those whom God has put in station above them, then you cannot have peace. You have chaos. You have peace when God is on the throne and when God administers authority to those whom he desires to put into positions of authority and when those leaders look to the Lord for their guidance and their direction, that is when we have greater peace in the land. But even though we live in a place where where that is a faraway ideal, we can still have peace knowing that God governs us 
even above these earthly leaders who disregard the commandments of God. So the second table has just begun. We have much more to learn from it. Uh, thank you for spending the time with us here tonight. I'm going to close this with a brief word of prayer, and then we'll have some time for Q&A. God, we thank you for being our Father and for loving us like your own children. We are so very thankful, God, that you have given us a mind and a heart that can think differently than our natural mind and heart would have thought. Because the natural heart of man, the sinfulness that is inherent to each one of us, wants to be king of our own kingdom and wants to rebel against any structure that would limit our freedom and our latitude. But Father, that is a desire that leads to destruction. And so you and your goodness have humbled us and it helped us to see that we are not God and that's perfectly okay because there is one God and he's doing a great job. You are perfectly capable of sovereignly leading our lives and putting the positions of pe- people in positions of authority over us to protect us, to look out for us, to instruct us, and to ensure our good. So help us to trust you in all things, God. Help us to be humble. If we are in a position or a station of authority and leadership, let us be honorable and respectable so that it, it's easy for those below us to obey this command. We love you, God, and we thank you for order. We thank you that you're a God of peace, and we pray it all in your perfect name. Amen. All right. I uh, used up a lot of the time today. Apologize for that, but we do have a little bit of time for a Q&A. So anybody have anything they'd like to ask or comments for clarity? Didn't clear it all up. I was going to ask about the one part of it. About parents and unbelievers, but we won't have any detail on this. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. And I, I can speak from experience on that because... My mom's a believer today, but when I was growing up, she wasn't in, in the faith. And so uh, I was largely on my own. And so I can count many brothers and sisters in the church who were my mothers and my fathers in the faith. Uh, many fathers and mothers of my own, uh, bro- my, my own friends at church who took me in and let me sit at the table with them and eat a meal with them, who let me hear uh, prayers of truth and who I knew were caring for me and would would pay for me to go to camp when I didn't have money to go to camp and to be able to hear the preaching of the Word. So I, I was very greatly blessed by having a family that became to me uh, a nurturing mother and father in the faith. And so I'm really grateful for that. Psalm 27, your mother and your father forsake you. The Lord will take care of you. Amen, He has. He has a way of doing that, right? Absolutely has. Any other questions? I think the hard part, too, when you start getting into just the idea of submission. Um, I think that with children, they need to understand. I, I like how you really got into the wide band of submission. And everyone in this room, you know, I remember growing up, I used to hear my aunt always say, you know, she would really discipline us hard because my mother kind of struggled with that. And she had no problem laying into us. <laughs> Boys think you know you're gonna do whatever you want to do. You're gonna be men one day, or you're gonna be nothing. She always used to say, "You don't mind somebody, mm-hmm. somewhere." And until you get older, you look around, you're like, "Wow, yeah, there's authority structures God's put in place." And yeah, I think children may struggle with that, at, you know, early on. It's a different day, you know. Parent parental discipline is so much more just sharp and sudden when we were growing up than it is today. And And there can be a blessing in that. There can be a blessing in that. You know, when we give children too much freedom 
And in a sense, by a lack of admonishment, we train them to act as though there is no authority over them. Then we set them on a course. And there's a place you can go if you want some examples of what happens when you do that. It's called a prison. You go to a prison and you see people that never learned the loving hand of correction, the, the careful heart of admonition, where there was a good and an evil, and both were clearly laid out before that child, and the consequences of going down the evil path had teeth to them. When that happens, you've got a much greater uh, chance of growing up in such a way that you have a reverence for others and that you can live as a profitable member of a society. And I can't tell you how much that affects your relationship with the Lord, too. If you're a rebel at home, do you think you're going to treat God with reverence and respect? Maybe, but probably not. Well, the hardest part, too, is when, I mean, I had kids such a good family, but they did love me correctly. I still went astray. That's true. Still yeah. No guarantees, right? Yeah, and the more down and later, but there's no guarantees there. You can't just go and just kind of accept God. But I think the, the children that struggle with what I see nowadays, after you know, speaking at that public school, then seeing the feminism, the radical feminism, like I was telling you that video, so I see, it's the same thing. It's like, like, who are you to be authority over me? You know, you talk to most women, most godly women will say yes. It is a battle with my flesh to say, I'm going to let my husband lead me, you know? And it's the same thing when we're on the road. Sometimes we're like, oh, well, ah, this police officer going too fast. That's your authority. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have to submit to someone. But I really like how you placed it that a regenerate heart should have the submission to God, no matter who the authority is. And we should submit to that authority as to the Lord, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that was a real struggle for us as elders to want to honor Romans 11 and the idea that, yes, this government is the one that God has put over us, but all these restrictions and prohibitions on worship that they put on us, at a certain point, they begin to encroach upon the command of God, which is more important than the command of the land. And the authority that God has granted to governments is only in so much as they are in line with what God declares to be good and true. Romans but, 13. Yes, Romans 13. Did I say something different? I'm sorry, Romans 13. And, and so when, when they begin to drift away from the Scripture and they begin to rule in such a way that you are now put in a conflicting situation where I can't go and worship in the house of the Lord even though the Scripture commands me to do that, you know, who am I going to serve here today? And so it, you know, it was with a heavy heart and with much prayer and meditation that, that we had to get through the, that situation and think how can we honor the Lord best through this? And at a certain point... You had to say, listen, if, if we get in trouble for this, then so be it. But Daniel continued to pray. He opened up his windows. He prayed. And he took whatever repercussions that came to him. And God provided for him through that. So praise be to the Lord that we were able to continue to, for the most part, unhindered worship and, uh, and still look out for our people. You know, we had concerns for their health and their well-being. Uh, but at the same time, we're also very concerned with the spiritual health and well-being of our people. And that's something that... Uh, your doctor doesn't care about so much. It's something that your your governor isn't considering. So uh, God has given various people authority in your life to point you in the right direction, and elders are one of those types of people. So go ahead, please. So uh, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, and he said, Honor your father, your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So we mentioned that that's... uh, Pretty tough um, yeah. consequence. Mm-hmm. 
So have you read any commentaries at all regarding this uh, that you that one does not one reviles their father and mother will surely die? Is this a, like a, is it a one and done deal like? one time and well, it seemed like the No, I mean you can see pr- pretty plainly in the Old Testament that you didn't have like example after example of a kid committing a sin and then getting strung up or something that you would have decimated all of Israel yeah, <laughs> very quickly, right? Because, yeah, so this is for somebody who is for the glory of God. You know, I I would expect it to have been a very rare occurrence when someone who is in habitual rebellion to their mother and their father. And we're not talking about a 3-year-old, right? We're talking about somebody who is you know, a threat to the authority of their father and their mother and is disrupting them in such a way that it's belligerent and it's, it's clearly something that they can't handle anymore. And I, I would expect that they would have to go through many sources of help trying to get support from uh, elders and others who could maybe help in the situation before they got to the, the, their wit's end. And I, I know that's particularly concerning to you. You've had some struggles with disciplining with your kids too in the past and it's, we've, prayed in tears together over uh, that. And so praise be to God that there was a patience level where you know, things have turned around to some degree and prayerfully to a greater degree with James. And, um, but yeah, in those days, it was, there was a legitimate course of action where somebody who broke this law perpetually and was old enough to be considered responsible for themselves, that they could be put to death for this. And th- there's not a lot of details regarding that. I think that it was case by case basis. But I remember thinking frequently, you know, you are so fortunate that we're not involved. Yeah. In yep. Yeah. And he's not the only one who's fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> probably oh, I probably wouldn't have hated that part either myself. Yeah, so. yeah. None of us would probably have bad ones. Yeah, that's, you know, it's different when you're in a theonomic culture than when you're trying to apply these things today when you don't have you know, the word of God coming through the priests and through uh, their discernment and you don't have prophetic revelation. It's harder to make those kind of judgment calls today, I would think. But we do have brothers who insist that the best way to bring peace in the land is to go back to a one-for-one application of the Old Testament law. And I, I can't really get behind that 100% um, because I, I don't think there's provision in the New Testament to show us how to set that up properly. I think it's better to do the best we can within the government of the home and the church and uh, to trust that the Lord's going to use that to impact the culture around us. But there's lots of debate that can be had in that regard. Although they won't call it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Still advocate for it. Yeah. So what's the ratio exactly? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I was really grateful, too. Uh, you, uh, just when you get into uh, the aspect of the way we are to implement our parenting. Um, I love the way you took a Christ-centered approach. Right? We are to share our failures, right, with our children and point them to Christ because often too many times that legalistic type of parenting comes out of us where we end up pointing our children to us. And yeah. we become the arbiter of truth and the standard of justice. And it's such a cold just callous way of parenting that lacks humility and uh, lacks discernment. Yeah. And we need to be on guard against that because we think we're being so holy when we do that, but we're actually probably a support stench in God's nostrils when we do that to ourselves. So, now you can do everything right and your children can still choose to walk away from the faith. Mm-hmm. 
But I think we do need to be very serious about the potential problem of bringing our children to church where they hear that Christ saves radically by grace and that we're not saved by our works. Then if they go home and they see that every affection that they have from their parents is contingent on their works, if they're getting a dichotomy there and there isn't that graceful loving compassion and long-suffering with the children, they don't see that equivalence, church and home, they can really make church seem like a hypocritical show and display when a parent doesn't see that example. So I can't emphasize enough the fact that the leadership from a mother and father is an exemplary leadership, that there needs to be real consideration and practice of repentance and and authentic uh, remorse when we have sinned ourselves and openness with our kids so they don't grow up thinking that mom and dad are perfect, but I'm always messing up. We need to show our kids that you know, this is us running to the cross together. We want the, the, the Lord to be our hope and our salvation because there's, there's salvation nowhere else. Not in our performance, not in our perfection, not in our obedience. It's all in the obedience of Christ. So there needs to be a, a, a continuity between the grace that's preached at church and the grace that's displayed in the home. We don't, right? It's good to express that because, um, you know, coming out of IFB and Roman Catholicism, I know, uh, you know, that whole iron fist rule is, you know, just it, parenting that for Christians should look different. Yeah. But tragically, as a man who's failed so many times at it, I, I can't say that it has in my life all the time. And it's such a benefit to us just in a practical sense also when we learn to lead like Christ leads. I was just talking with a mom today who's got a little one that's a bit of a handful. And she was sharing about how her and her husband have really been trying to focus in on staying calm with their child when he just blows up and tries to push every button that they are now learning. The more Christ-like they can be, the more calm they can keep themselves where they stick to the truth and they don't deviate from the truth. It's not like they just let them get away with stuff, but they stay calm in the moment and they don't discipline out of reactionary emotional experience that it makes everything settle down way quicker. And now the kid's learning that my blow up, my fit doesn't make mom and dad have a fit, so it's not actually producing what I want it to produce, which is frustration that lets me just get away with what I want to do. And so uh, it's really cool to see that when people love the Lord, trust Him, and learn to parent the way that He's called us to parent, parent towards the heart, try to help our young ones have a love for the Word of God and a love for the truth instead of just trying to cram virtue into them, then uh, the home can be a much more peaceful place. There's always exceptions to that. Sometimes you just, you do everything right, and there's challenges upon challenges, but God gives grace even for those situations. Well, it's 8 o'clock, friends, so thank you for coming tonight. appreciate your presence, your attentiveness, your questions. Be blessed. Have a great night, and we will see you again next week.